0: Push was on for everyone to take it. And they said, Well, just take one dose. Like that was the sales pitch in the beginning. I think most people forget, right? And then they were like, Well, it's actually a two-dose vaccine, so you have to get your second dose. And it just the goalposts kept shifting. And then they started talking about booster shots in, in the States and Canada, rolling it out in kids and every six months. And and I knew that, that was that was the I mean, that was a complete insanity. And like they all lined up for the jabs. They were the first ones to line up for the jabs. And they just all fell in line. No one was questioning, you know, doctors being taught not to question vaccines. And I think that was another key because they changed the definition of the vaccine. And they knew this from the beginning uh, because it was marketed as a vaccine. But if this had been treated as a drug, like this is a new drug. They knew that that no one would accept it if it was marketed that way. So medicine, in a way, is like the military. It's very hierarchical. The doctors that see patients are at the very bottom. Then you've got the heads of the departments, the heads of the hospitals, doctors at the top of the universities and, and journals and so on, right? So it, it is a pyramid. So if the ones at the top are telling you it's fine, basically, you know, doctors will fall in line. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm
1: Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter.
2: We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Dr. William Mackis on the line, a cancer researcher, oncologist, radiologist, to talk about COVID, the vaccines. This is going to be a really exciting episode. I'm so stoked for this. And Dr. Mackis, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks. Ryan is also here. Ryan,
2: how are you doing? I'm good. It's a really surreal conversation we're gonna have because I never thought that I would be having it four years ago. but I'm sure, as you know, many people's minds have been elevated the last couple of years. so it's going to be a really a really deep discussion, a little bit controversial but exciting so i'm i'm really I'm really into it.
1: It's almost become less controversial yeah. now, which is like the hilarious part of it. So I guess going back to the beginning, beginning, Dr. Macus, it's like, when was this watershed moment for you? Were you kind of just working as, you know, an oncologist, radiologist researching and, you know, maybe a little bit skeptical about COVID in, in the first place? Or how did you realize everything that was going on was, you know, completely opposite of what the mainstream was telling us?
0: You know, I, I, I knew that there was a virus, you know, in China that was spreading. And I found it interesting that uh, John Hopkins had that counter, you know, that was all up and running and telling you how many cases and where they were. And, 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 you know, that was kind of fascinating that they had that up and running and where they were getting all that data. But OK. Um, and then uh, it hit. I remember it hit uh, Canada. Uh, it was about mid-March of 2020, and you know I was looking at the you know case fatality information, and it didn't seem to be affecting young people um, really almost at all. Uh, so you know I wasn't panicked, or I wasn't really worried about it. For me, uh, uh, the moment where I knew that they were going to make a big deal out of this was when they announced, and it was I think it was uh, like a weekend. Uh, when they announced it was the NHL, so they were shutting down hockey, they, it was the NBA, it was the NFL, um, it was all all the major uh, sports leagues were announcing that they were basically, you know, shutting down, canceling the rest of their seasons. Uh, and then I realized, like, okay, they're going to make a huge deal out of this. Um, and um, so that was very suspicious to me because, again, it kind of didn't make, it, it seemed to be like an overreaction right but um you know i was actually semi-retired as a physician i was still doing research but i wasn't in in, in active clinically so um i kind of ignored it in 2020 to be honest i mean i saw the you know the six six feet apart rule and 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 the masking and all that nonsense Uh, but i actually thought it was just kind of going to blow over and and it was going to be uh know sort of a one-year thing and if you just kind of ignore it it, it's gonna go away on its own and of course then the vaccines hit then the vaccine rollout hit and that for me that changed everything because uh, i didn't expect them to go so aggressive with the rollout of the vaccines i thought okay well maybe they're just gonna give vaccines to the elderly or or to people in long-term care homes where you know the virus apparently uh, was really making people sick in these long-term care homes. But I didn't. I really didn't anticipate that they would be rolling it out in the entire population. And then I find out, well, it's this new technology with mRNA and lipid nanoparticles. And I knew a little bit about that from oncology, that they had been tinkering with this for many years with these technologies, lipid nanoparticles. They were playing with it, trying to figure out how to put chemotherapy into it and deliver it uh, in uh, late-stage cancer patients. And it never really worked. I knew that mRNA had never worked successfully in in a- any fashion, and so um, it was very bizarre to me that they'd be using these technologies as a vaccine to give to everybody. And I and I remember just telling my wife, "I'm um, you know that we're not going to participate. <laughs> we're not going to participate in this in this experiment." But the bizarre part was that it was it was the the, the push was on for everyone to take it. And they said, well, just take one dose. Just take one dose. And you know, we'll get to well, if, if only 70% of you take one dose, we'll get to herd immunity. And 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 you know, one dose is is like it, you know, it's it's protective enough, right? Like that was the sales pitch in the beginning. I think most people forget the the sales pitch is how they kind of try to sell us the vaccine initially, right? And then they like, like, Well, it's actually a two-dose vaccine, so you have to get your second dose, and it just the goalposts kept shifting, right? Um, and and I started speaking out on Twitter. It was about August of 2021 when I realized, okay, they're rolling out booster shots in Israel. Now Israel has uh, a huge explosion of cases. They had the highest case rate of COVID 19 in the world, even though they just rolled out the booster shots. And then they started talking about booster shots in in the states and Canada, rolling it out in kids and every six months. And and I knew that that was that was the. I mean, that was complete insanity. And, and I had to start speaking out and saying something. So that's kind of when I started speaking out in, in mid 2021. So yeah, it's, it is
1: crazy. Almost like you said, people forget about kind of how the stages progressed uh, in the beginning. And, and I, I always thought the same it Was like, you know, even looking at the fatality rates to me, it made no sense that this is something that needed to be mandated for, you know, all ages, especially, you know, people like our Ryan and myself's
0: age um, who are pretty healthy. So what well, I remember, I still remember SARS. I still remember yeah. uh, MERS. Like, you know, I think SARS was what, like 10% fatality or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like this was like less than 1%. Yeah. And, you know, the more we sort of learn about it, the more we realized it was way less than 1% um, for anyone who didn't have any kind of comorbidities or, or complex health issues. So they really over blew it. And, and now I think when you talk to people now, uh, the people who've been taking the vaccines, you know, every, every six months and taking their boosters and, and they're still masking, um, they have such an overblown um, and overestimated um. view of the virus of the danger of the virus they think like if you get this thing it'll kill you and so you better have your like six shots or seven shots and and uh, double masking right because their perception of the risk of the virus is so warped and i think a lot of the people who i guess still cling on to the propaganda their their perception of the risks is completely disconnected from reality
2: yeah And I was just going to pop in one thing because I remember very distinctly like December 2020, I got COVID um, and I gave it to the rest of my family. We were all kind of this was, I think, when they had started closing uh, certain universities here in Utah. And my brother came back from university and was sort of squatting with the fam. And my dad was home. Everyone was like working from home. My mom's a school teacher. So she was trying to corral first graders in a virtual (laughs) Uh, education, you know, state, which is like nearly impossible. Um, and I remember getting COVID and I had just like, for me, it was just like, a ma- I just had a massive headache was basically my whole thing. And then everyone else got it, but nobody else actually knew they had it until I tested for it because no one else had symptoms in my family. And my parents are, well, my dad does have comorbidities. He has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, those sort of things, just kind of standard, standard American problems. Um, and my mom, who's a school teacher, felt nothing. My brother, who's like as strong as an ox, felt nothing. And what was so fascinating to me was I was sort of in this space already of, of sort of questioning, quote, authority and like always, you know, making sure that I dot my eyes across my T's when, before I ever make decisions, especially with these types of things. And the vaccine hadn't even been created yet. But I was so fascinated by, even after their very light experience with, pretty much like one of the OG variants that they still wanted to pursue vaccination and were so gung ho about the fear of not doing so, even when their experience with it was so menial. And so for me, the greatest um, realization I had over the last couple of years was just the psychology of how this time affected them. It seems like it created a fork in the road for pretty much 50-50 on either side. And so what I'd love to ask you is like, just you being in that sort of physician status, um, even on the research side, how did you witness the psychology of your peers too um, change throughout that time period? Because to me, it it was either like you get in line and you're clearly a follower, or you do have some critical thinking skills and you can ask the right questions. And it became this sort of battle of, asking questions is now inappropriate, which to me is what science is all about.
1: Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education.
0: Yeah, well, I can tell you, um, I wasn't... So I wasn't uh, practicing uh, clinically in a hospital setting and and that may have in a in ways in a way that may have saved me because I wasn't in a in a environment where there was you know tre- there apparently was tremendous peer pressure to to conform and to fall in line and, and and to be you know one of the first people to line up for the jab because I saw all of my colleagues, uh, fall in line. I saw them, and these are brilliant people. These are, you know, McGill University is the best medical school in, in, in Canada. I went, you know, I, I keep in touch with a lot of my classmates. I've got them on my Facebook. And like, they all lined up for the jabs. They were the first ones to line up for the jabs. And they just all fell in line. No one was questioning. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I would love to know what went on in the hospitals, in, in sort of the the first year, really, before the vaccines were rolled out to make um, pretty much almost everybody fall in line so easily. Uh, Because I've always said that if a significant enough, a small but significant percentage of doctors had stood up and said, no, there's no way we're taking this vaccine. We're walking out. We're not working. You know, let the hospital shut down and so on. We would have had very, very different uh, situations and conversations around mandates and all of that stuff, uh, especially in healthcare. care. Uh, but because doctors rolled over in such huge numbers, and when you look at the doctors who are who speaking out, you know, with concerns about the vaccine, it was such a minuscule number. It was such a small number. In, in, in Canada, you could count those doctors on maybe one or two hands in the entire country out of 100,000 doctors there were maybe 10 who like vocally stood up and said listen there's something really wrong with this vaccine uh you know there's blood clots uh there was Dr. Charles Hoff in British Columbia who said look I'm testing my patients they come a lot of patients are coming in with blood clots they've got uh, sky high d-dimers so there's they're clearly clotting right after taking their vaccines there's a problem with this vaccine he writes to the health minister of course that his clinic burns down and and then you know, they strip him of his job and his license and everything else. But there was such a small number of doctors who spoke up. Um, doctors just fell in line when it came time to time to the vaccine. So there had to be tremendous uh, propaganda, brainwashing. Uh, obviously, uh, what's what's interesting to me is that the medical associations seem to have been co-opted from day one and there was there was no pushback from any of the medical associations whether it was the pediatric associations or the obstetric associations they all fell in line all of them they 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 pushed the propaganda you know almost 100% and i think you know once you get once once they got the doctors that early on to comply uh, of course you know then they eventually brought the mandate anyways to force the rest of them that were kind of maybe just, you know, biding their time or, or maybe, you know, they weren't uh, so eager to get the vaccines. Then they just mandated those, those people said, okay, well, you're getting it or you're losing your job. Right. But, but they got the doctors very early on. uh, And that I think um, that would be a good thing to study in terms of psychologically, how did they succeed in getting the doctors on board so early on and in such vast numbers, because, uh, you know, that made it a lot easier to ro- roll it out in the entire population. If you've got all the doctors on board and, you, and, and the ones who are dissenting are, are too small of a group to make uh, a significant difference, you know, then they were able to really roll it out in the entire population. And they got up to, you know, 85% or so of the population, at least to take the first two jabs. Right then, of course, with the boosters and everything, it it, it falls off a cliff. But um, they did manage to get that 85% roughly to, to take the first two jams.
1: Yeah, it, it really is crazy how quick kind of the narrative was just so cemented in the ground. I, I think it's mostly probably because of fear. I think doctors are probably just scared to speak out, to lose their job. There was even before, and maybe what I want to get into a little bit is, you know, before COVID there was this fear of being labeled like an anti-vaxxer, right? Like in, in general. So I think they use that as like a propaganda technique and maybe they just didn't know. Um, it seems like you had kind of this background that MRNA lipid nanoparticles are, are kind of like a technology that you've, you know, heard of being used before, but it never really worked. I'm assuming most doctors are probably not as familiar and then they just group all of that together. So, so maybe a good question is now getting into is like, you know, what is the, the main differences between the COVID vaccines, the mRNA ones, the DNA ones, and then like, you know, traditional, you could say, vaccines that have been recommended for, for decades?
0: Well, I can tell you, um, you're right about the, the part about the vaccines and, and really, you know, doctors being taught not to question vaccines. And I think that was another key because they changed the definition of the vaccine. You know what is a vaccine? They changed the definition, and and so if this had been, and they knew this from the beginning uh, because it was marketed as a vaccine. But if this had been treated as a drug, like this is a new drug, uh, I'm not even going to go into like you know this is a, this is a new gene gene therapy or something like that because you know they knew that that no one would accept it if it was marketed that way. But doctors question drugs. <clears throat> we do, right? And and, and, and but if you label it a vaccine, then it's kind of like you don't question it, right? And I think for a lot of doctors, it was like, oh, it's a vaccine, you know, we're not questioning it. And especially if, if all the medical associations said it's fine, it's safe, it's effective, what have you, like doctors didn't read the trials, you know, doctors didn't read the Pfizer trials or the the Moderna trials. They usually, doctors, um, you know, usually take the path of least resistance. Uh, They're busy. Uh, You know, they're often busy with patients, uh, paperwork, what have you, like they will not go get the original trials and look at it. And especially if you've got the biggest, papers in the world, like the biggest journals in the world, like, you know, Nature and JAMA and Lancet, if you've got these papers telling you it's safe and effective, how in the world, why, why in the world would you even question if the biggest journals in the world are telling you it's safe, your medical association is telling you it's safe, uh, your licensing bodies are telling you it's safe, the ones that, you know, control your medical licenses. So medicine in a way is like the military. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but it's very hierarchical. And so the doctors usually the the doctors that see patients are at the very bottom. you know the the doctors you've got then you've got the heads of the departments, the heads of the hospitals, um, and, and and you know, doctors at the top of the universities and and journals and so on, right? So it, it is a pyramid. So if the ones at the top are telling you it's fine, basically, you know, doctors will fall in line. So the ones who questioned, um like myself, like there there's something, you know, there's something different in our background that led us to question these things. And for example, you know, I come from a communist country, so I'm gonna be questioning anything that's coming from the state. No, seriously, right? Like 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 there's nothing that the pol- politicians can tell me that I'm just gonna take it face value. I,
1: I was curious on why your background was like fundamentally skeptical, because that you know, it's, it's not common. So that's that's great to know.
0: Yeah, and you're gonna, but you're gonna find that with 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 a lot of people from the former uh, communist countries, like the mm-hmm. Eastern Bloc, uh, they just automatically have this distrust of of um, authority and 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 the state. So you're you're never gonna take something coming out of the politicians at face value. Whereas people born in Canada or people born in the United States, a lot of them will take things at face value and say, so well, why would the, why would my politician be lying to me, right? Um, Well, at at least in Canada, I think that there's even more more trust in the state than, you know, than in the United States. But but yeah, so that helps having that background uh, coming out of communism. Um, And then, you know, I, 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 I think some of us who ended up questioning the narrative, we had unique circumstances. So, like I said, I wasn't practicing clinically. I had some, you know, background in oncology where I encountered mRNA, lipid nanoparticles. So, you know, that that helped me but um percent of doctors you know didn't have that they trusted you know uh they trusted their superiors uh they trusted the specialists so the infectious disease specialists again they all fell in line and they were the they were the experts in all of this right so yeah unfortunately the doctors just fell in line just all across the board
2: so just kind of going back to the the question of like what what marks the differences between um, like oh we kind of did talk about it. I guess
0: the the marketing of that oh, makes mean,
2: the difference
0: oh you mean how how's the vaccine different right yeah. uh, from let's say compared to like traditional uh, well so traditionally I mean if you have um, vaccines where you're using let's say an inactivated virus right then then you're basically you're getting the body to encounter the entire virus in a you know non virulent form inactivated form and and it's a much more of a nat- of, i mean i i you know it's a weird it's a weird term to use natural way of encountering the virus but in, in a way it is uh, because you're you're showing the body the whole virus in a way that you know you don't put yourself at risk of, of of infection, for example, and so you know you're able to build an immune response that way. It's completely different with with um, when you're introducing you know when you when you're introducing genetic sequences. That's a whole new thing. And and whether you're doing it, you know, with the DNA vectors, you're you're putting it into this inactivated monkey virus. The you know the adenoviral vectors or with the lipid nanoparticles, that introduces another layer of complexity uh, because the lipid nanoparticles themselves are highly problematic. Um, They're highly problematic because, uh, well, and and I mean, the biggest problem of all is that they go everywhere and and they don't stay, you know, they don't stay in, in, in the arm, they don't stay in the shoulder. And that really is the reason behind all the side effects is because if if it had stayed just in the shoulder, created some kind of an immune response, uh, on paper in theory it might have worked. But where we where we really have been lied to, um, and where you know there had to be a freedom of information request to get the biodistribution studies, like the the Japanese biodistribution study, to show that they knew that these lipid nanoparticles, they end up in the bloodstream and they go everywhere and they accumulate in organs and they accumulate in the bone marrow and then they accumulate in the heart and the testes and the ovaries and they cross the blood brain barrier and they end up in the brain. I mean, this is the source of the damage. This is the source of the vaccine injuries and eventually vaccine related deaths. And it's the big lie that you know this, this lipid nanoparticle, and I'm not even talking about what's inside the lipid nanoparticle, just the lipid nanoparticle. It ends up going systemic, delivering the payload to every organ and every place where where the material shouldn't end up. And of course, once you put a, a genetic sequence in there, well, now you're introducing a foreign protein all over the body in places that you shouldn't have delivery of foreign proteins all over the body in this completely unnatural way, right? And 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 that I think is the problem with this, the big problem with this technology that doesn't get talked about a lot. I mean, there's a lot of focus on the spike protein and how toxic and inflammatory it is and so on, but really it's the lipid nanoparticle that is, that's the key to the whole, uh, to the, to the whole um, spectrum of side effects. It's the systemic delivery. That's the problem.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, this is almost, I haven't heard as much about the lipid nanoparticle. So just to clarify this is the delivery mechanism for the mRNA like the Pfizer Moderna vaccines that will deliver the instructions to encode for the spike protein basically yes okay yeah. and exactly. and you're saying that that's kind of just pervasive it's gone everywhere in our biology and and that's a big problem is is it only with the mRNA ones then um, or is it with all of them
0: so so that's interesting so the lipid nanoparticle is with um, with Pfizer and Moderna, they use lipid nanoparticles. Now they might use a slightly different lipid nanoparticle, but both of them end up in the bloodstream. Um, and it's also with Novavax. Now Novavax mm. is, is, it's not a lipid nanoparticle, it's a nanoparticle. It's actually a, it's bizarre. It's like a combination of two nanoparticles. Um, that one also goes systemic and and also creates creates uh, problems systemically it doesn't get talked about much but it's also a a a nanoparticle that ends up going systemic so those three vaccines the pfizer the moderna and the novavax um now the astrazeneca and the jnj i mean you know they're basically i mean they're off the market because they were they were causing problems so much problems with blood clotting they were basically taken off the market So, you know, there may not be a point as much talking about um, them other than, but I want to stress that um, what I have found in the course of my research is that Pfizer and Moderna have similar problems with blood clotting, maybe not on the same level as AstraZeneca and J&J, but on enough of a level that they should have been taken off the market for blood clotting as well. And they weren't. I mean, no one is touching, no one is touching that issue. Uh, So it's almost as if, you know, it was on purpose that they took those ones off the market uh, and they left Pfizer and Moderna on the market to basically be the main weapon
1: of choice, right? So you're saying this, it's almost more dangerous because it has the clotting plus potential long-term effects of the lipid nanoparticles?
0: Well, so it has, so it has the clotting issues just like the other ones, and it has a whole bunch of other issues, and again it's it's because of the systemic delivery and then you know you get this translation of the spike protein all over the place um and it's just it's just such a wide variety of of damage and immune system problems um i mean there's if you look at just the spike protein literature i think there's something over you know like over a thousand papers describing the, the, the damaging aspects of the spike protein. And, and we're, still, we're, we're still learning new things, uh, you know, every day. There's, there's new publications coming out all the time of the damage that the spike protein does in, in various places. Are you self-employed or a small
1: business owner and are tired of paying hundreds of dollars a month to centralized health insurance companies for minimal coverage because there is no alternative? Well, I have good news for you. There is. And this podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a more decentralized alternative to health insurance and it uses community and crowdfunding to help its members pay for emergencies when they do happen. They incentivize and prioritize health and personal responsibility and share the thought that you should really only be using the centralized healthcare system when emergencies do happen. This is what I am on board with and I have personally signed up for CrowdHealth since I left the corporate engineering world and the medical benefits that come with it. If you want to learn more, You can check out our episode with CEO and founder, Andy Schoonover, or you can head over to joincrowdhealth.com and use code DRadio, D-R-A-D-I-O, when you sign up to get a discounted rate of only $99 for the first three months. Centralized healthcare is one of the biggest issues in our society today, and I really love what CrowdHealth is doing to provide an alternative for people who care.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, well, I can give you just one example. I mean, when I uh, met my girlfriend, she, I think it was just when they're rolling out the first round of booster shots. Um, and, and she, I, I wasn't being all super open with her about my stance on some of this stuff. Cause I was like, I don't want to scare anyone away with my ideology yet, <laughs> but, um, but she got them and she developed, um, a form of tachycardia, uh, sinus tachycardia. And it's, it's been pretty terrible. And so the question I always had with it was because of these such varied issues, it makes it a perfect storm, but also it makes it sort of a perfect scenario for on, on the conventional side, because it's so systemic that it's like to trace it back other than looking at the data of just seeing more numbers of these issues happening. You, you wouldn't necessarily go do the doctor and then pinpoint the vaccine as the problem initially, because like you said, it isn't an isolated event. The thing that makes it so frustrating to me is going into this, you're messing, you're sort of playing with fire. You're playing with this stuff that we've been working on for decades, but never really figured it out. My thought immediately was like, well, how did we suddenly figure it out? You know what I mean? And so I, I this is all like just theory in my head, but it it makes it super conflicting to me because it's like, how do we figure it out? And then also because it is so systemic when you have a population that has a bunch of people with comorbidities, usually more than two, um, how does that affect them versus say someone like me that maybe doesn't, and there's no way they could have known that in such a short trial period. And also when they did the, um, like the emergency use, I think the way the emergency use works, and you can correct me on this if if I get this wrong, is that they have to prove that you, there's no efficacy of other drugs that exist currently to use it. So then they could get emergency use of of the jab. Is that correct? Because that's what I've like heard.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I mean, there's a there's a number of questions. Um, you know, you, you've got in there. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm going off. That's okay. But but for example, um, you know, you bring up the point of of. People who are healthy versus people who have comorbidities. Now, here the fascinating part is that um, initially, you know, I was of the view, and this is at the very beginning, I was of the view that, you know, maybe if there was a protective effect, it might have the risk benefit might have benefited people who were at the highest risk of severe disease, uh, severe COVID nineteen, and this would have been people over seventy with comorbidities or younger people, especially with comorbidities. Uh, if there was a protective effect at all, which I, at this point, I'm of the view that I don't know if there was any protective effect uh, of this thing. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, you know, they they do some measuring and they find some uh, antibodies. But when, when you look at the data, at least, you know, when some of the governments were releasing the data, like the Canadian governments or the Australian governments, you don't see a protective effect at all. Uh, w- what you see is over time is that, You know, there's an initial drop in in immunity within the first few weeks. And then it seems to, the damage to the immune system kind of seems to build up over the following six to eight months. And at about six to eight months after your, your last shot, these people are getting sick, like with COVID, they are two or three times more likely to get sick with COVID than people who are unvaccinated for example, right? So you know that there's immune system damage going on because if the vaccine just didn't do anything, then the double double vaccinated and unvaccinated would be doing the same. They'd be getting infected at the same rate. You know, you shouldn't see a huge difference. You shouldn't see a two or three fold uh, increase in the rate of the double vaccinated getting sick compared to the unvaccinated. So there's there's immune system damage. Now this immune system damage is probably for, is for everybody is whether you're healthy whether you, whether you had some comorbidities to begin with so i'm a, i'm of the opinion that there there may not have been any benefit to these vaccines at all and if you're if you already have some health problems if you're dealing with some health problems to begin with now you've basically just added a toxin that is probably making your underlying health conditions even worse uh, right and so if you've had and, and we hear this from people who've had autoimmune issues but their autoimmune diseases like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis and so on, or diabetes, uh, thyroid problems, like they they were under control. And then they take a jab, they take a booster shot, and then suddenly their autoimmune disease is completely out of control. You know, their their, their skin problems are worse, their lupus is worse, their arthritis is worse. Uh, so it seems to worsen whatever you've had. Um, you know, it just, you seem to go downhill health-wise. So... Um, I think this thing is toxic for everybody, right? Whether, whether you're healthy or whether you've had some uh, comorbidities or conditions to begin with, I think everyone gets hit. Now, you, people get hit to various degrees because, of course, there's batch-to-batch variability, and that's another complication of this vaccine is that it isn't like like taking uh, you know a, a, a Tylenol uh, or an aspirin where it's like, okay, everyone gets the same drug because it's manufactured the same way and you know the quality control is the same we end up with batches that seem to have different quantities of mrna or concentrations of M- mrna some of the mrna is degraded some of it isn't maybe in higher concentrations than would be expected so there's there's batch to batch variability so everyone gets hit in a different way which which makes it even more complicated to trace the side effects back to the vaccine but i think i think everyone got hit uh, I think I think this has been detrimental to, to everyone who took the vaccine. And you know, if you were lucky, and maybe you even got a saline shot, or maybe you got a shot that had the mRNA was degraded, or there was too low of a concentration to make a difference, then maybe you got lucky. But uh, I think uh, everyone—it seems like everyone had had, an, had a negative effect from the vaccine, regardless of your of your medical status. So, so that that's one part of your question um i don't know if you want to just repeat uh the, the other parts of your question uh, first i just want to quickly yeah. say ryan
1: um yeah i just noticed that exactly because my well i read about the batch variability and i kind of wanted to just you know it seems like you just the more you took like if you took two jabs that's worse than one if you took four boosters obviously that's worse than two and i noticed that like my dad he had like no side effects at all the first two shots but then the third one the booster was you know he was out for two, three weeks, like really sick, so um I think that's a huge issue, and yeah, maybe people did get lucky, but I think it's something that people don't really talk about as much, so I just want to kind of add that comment in well there.
0: every time every time you take a dose you you're taking the risks all over again, yep, yeah. Right. So like
1: your body may have recovered, you may have cleared it out to some degree, restored immune system signaling and function. And then you just, you know, you hit it again. And I think it's this repetition compounded with whatever daily toxins you're exposed to. And we can get into kind of healing from, you know, vaccine jabs and injuries um, in a bit. But yeah, that makes sense to me. Follow you, have Ryan
2: oh yeah sorry i was just like looking one thing up because i i i've just like there's too many rabbit holes you know there's too many rabbit holes for like one one person's mind but like for me like there's to me like the biggest thing was just like when you hear the story so much doesn't make sense that it boggles my mind and i I understand it goes back to fear and all these sort of like emotional things that you know cause people to make decisions irrationally but it just seemed like one of those things where after the data keep came coming out, and like the the data on how they got to like the ninety nine hundred percent efficacy is really funny, um, but it, it just the more and more it doesn't make sense. I kind of want to ask you about SV forty a little bit, and okay. some of the, like the cancer issues because I know that kind of goes into your wheelhouse and your background. But just sort of like explain that story a little bit about like what SV forty is like how long has it been out there, and then kind of how we got to where we are now because it's just such a fascinating history. Um, but I just sort of love your take on some of that stuff.
1: If you're a health-conscious food consumer who's also very active, you know how big of a struggle it is to find a bar that is both convenient and nutrient-dense. That's why I was so excited when I discovered the Alpa Bar. The Alpa Bar is a meat-based bar that contains only simple ingredients, 100% grass-fed beef, tallow, and honey and is both nutrient-dense and convenient, and packs a caloric punch of over 300 calories. For me, this was a game-changer and is now the go-to snack and fuel source I use when I'm hiking, camping, hunting, skiing, or doing anything in the outdoors and I don't have the resources to cook a full meal. The Alpa Bar is made proudly in Colorado and only uses locally sourced meat. JJ and Rob are also extremely based and accept Bitcoin for payment. I highly recommend you check out the Alpa Bar for any time you need a nutrient-dense and convenient snack on the go. Check them out at eatalpa.com and use code DRadio5 at checkout to get a 5% discount. And if you pay in Bitcoin, you can get an additional discount on top of that. That's eat. AUPA.com and use code DRADIO5 at checkout.
0: Sure. So, so this, is a, this is a fairly recent issue. Um, Kevin McKernan, who's a geneticist in the U.S., uh, he discovered DNA contamination in the Pfizer and Moderna vials back in the spring. Uh, I believe it was around maybe around April of 2023. Before that, we really didn't know anything about this issue of DNA contamination, he, and he discovered it by accident. Um, he of course repeated, you know, the, the experiments many times, you know, put out a, a preprint, uh, a, a paper of it, sequenced it, and he discovered that there's, there's DNA plasmids and there's DNA fragments in the, in the vaccines in much higher quantities than should be allowed. Um, and so, so he comes out with this, of course, then it's confirmed by other people, other labs in the States. Uh, Professor Philip Buckholtz uh, at University of South Carolina confirms it uh we've got in Canada we have a geneticist uh Dave, David speaker at the University of Guelph who ran 27 vials uh, confirmed DNA contamination in all of them I think there were labs in Germany that have confirmed it labs in Japan so so that that issue is confirmed there's there's contamination of DNA now where's this DNA coming from the DNA, plasmids, which are rings of DNA, have the spike protein sequence in it. Um, and it's it's the manufacturing, it's how the mRNA vaccines apparently are manufactured uh, for the mass population. Now, this is not how they manufactured it for the trials, uh, but this is how they mass manufacture it for the rest of the world. And so they put the spike protein sequence in the plasmid, they put the plasmid in E. coli bacteria, they grow the E. coli bacteria to billions and trillions of of bacteria, then they extract the plasmids, then they uh, do the um, a transcription from the DNA plasmids into the RNA. And then they're supposed to extract the RNA and then put it into the vials. And that's how you end up with the mRNA vaccines, right? Or I guess put it with the lipid nanoparticles and then you've got your vials. But they're supposed to destroy the, all the DNA that's used in the production of the vaccine. And apparently they didn't um, or maybe they tried and it failed. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, there's some fascinating things coming out because I've, I've spoken to uh, David Speaker about this. He's, he's talking to me now about these, um, this binding of the mRNA to the DNA creating essentially like a DNA, mRNA hybrids. And so that. Apparently, when you've got these hybrids forming, um, you can't even cleave the DNA. You can't even get rid of the DNA because the enzyme can't even access it. And so it's these hybrids that end up in the lipid nanoparticles that end up being injected into people. It, it starts getting really uh, scary when you, when you hear about some of this stuff. So now the additional complication is that Kevin McKernan discovered there's a sequence of uh, sv40 which is simian virus 40 uh, a virus um, monkey virus for the lack of a better term uh, an oncogenic virus that is you know believed to cause cancer in humans there's a sequence of it a portion of it in front of the spike sequence and this is only in the pfizer vials so the question is what is what why is it there what is it doing there of course pfizer has has never uh, addressed this uh, and uh, I believe the regulatory agencies, like Health Canada and the European uh, Regulatory Agency, they've come out and they said, "Oh well, you know, Pfizer didn't tell us about this DNA contamination or the SV40 sequence, but we looked at it and it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Uh, it doesn't cause any problems clinically." Of course, they have no nothing to back that up. But um, <clears throat> so now there's there's concern that. A, the DNA is much easier to integrate into our DNA than reverse transcribing from the mRNA back to DNA. That's a more complicated process. So it's much more likely for this DNA contamination to integrate into our DNA. And once you have integration events, that's when you're talking about cancer because that's when you're when you're knocking out genes, you're knocking out potentially tumor, tumor suppressor genes um, depending where the integration takes place. Um, and you potentially get cancer. Now, that part has yet to be proven. Uh, so they still have to prove that there's integration events that took place and then that may have led to cancer. But I think that's that's coming. That's That'll probably be proven in the next few months. So yes, it's one of the potential mechanisms of how cancer may be arising in people who've been vaccinated. Now, the caution I wanna draw there Uh, and about this whole DNA plasmic issue and this whole contamination issue, the caution is this. Um, In some ways, this actually plays into big pharma's hands. Because if you're blaming all the problems on DNA contamination, well, one day they could come out and say, oh, you know what, we've changed our process. Now there's no more DNA contamination. And you know that the mRNA platform was always amazing and great to begin with. So we'll just continue on as we always have. We just cleaned up a little bit of the contamination and now everything is hunky-dory. And, you know, now we're producing uh, hundreds of millions of doses of mRNA vaccines and go get vaccinated, right? Uh, so in a way, it it does play into Big Pharma's hands to blame everything on the DNA contamination. We just don't know. It may be a factor in some of the injuries and cancers and deaths, but we don't know to what degree. But what I'm starting to see is that there's a co-opting of the narrative where certain forces seem to want to manipulate the narrative around this whole DNA contamination thing to say, oh, well, it causes all the problems. And then so, you know, then Big Pharma can step in and say, oh, well, we fixed that issue because we've changed our manufacturing process and now there's no more DNA contamination and the platform was always amazing to begin with because you've got Elon Musk saying that he loves the mRNA platform, right? And even Philip Buckholds, who, who confirmed the DNA contamination, he said mRNA, mRNA platform is great. Uh, this DNA contamination is obviously a huge problem, uh, but the underlying technology is wonderful. So I think we have to be very careful when it comes to this issue because I think it's a narrative that can be very easily co-opted and very easily turned against us. Um, especially if you blame everything on this DNA contamination. And they know that that there's no way around it. First, they try to ignore it. and But with so many labs confirming that, yes, the DNA contamination is there, like the cat's out of the bag or the genie's out of the bottle. You can't put that genie back in, right? So the next best thing you can do is co-opt the narrative and then shape the narrative to benefit Big Pharma, which I think is what's happening right now.
1: Yeah, that's something I thought of immediately when you're, you know, kind of stating, you don't know if this was by accident or, you know, done on purpose. It's almost like they could blame manufacturing for being rushed yeah. to get it out into the market so fast. And like, oh, we were trying to like save everyone. And, you know, there and was guess just what? some It's We're, mistakes, we're in man. election
0: year, right? Yeah. So isn't it convenient that in, a, in an election year in the United States, now they can come out and say, well, you know, that Trump, uh, he rushed us Uh, Into production. And it's his fault that there's DNA contamination in these vials because of whatever, you know, uh, we were rushed to do this step or this step differently. But uh, so it's all Trump's fault. But now we can fix it. And, you know, like, like this can be co-opted politically as well.
1: Yeah, and then there could be a new whether it's vaccine, drug, gene therapy that heals from the damages of the original COVID vaccine that you know I can everyone's tell you,
0: recommended to take now. So I was I was reading a paper, and and uh, the paper basically said that there are about five hundred, there are about five hundred mRNA vaccines that are in some a stage of development. Action. Uh, development sorry development yeah in the pipeline whether it's phase one phase two or phase three 500 different mRNA vaccines this is between Pfizer and Moderna you know maybe there'll be uh, other companies that'll jump in but they've gone all in on this technology they're not giving it up and this is like they've made several hundred billion dollars on the first round they're building factories all over the world here's the thing is is that even though people have stopped taking the COVID-19 vaccines and Pfizer comes out and says, okay, well, we're done with the COVID vaccines. Now we're going to focus on cancer. And, you know, we just bought this new cancer uh, drug company for $43 billion, and it's all going to be cancer, cancer, cancer. And yet they're still building mRNA factories all over the world, right? It, it's it's like, well, don't look here. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of like we're being distracted at the moment, but they're going all in on mRNA, and yeah.
1: So, and, and that's how yeah. I found your work. It's like, you're talking a lot about the turbo cancers and I'm curious what the difference is between that and like regular or any type of cancer. And then, yeah, it seems very convenient that they're putting all this money and funding into, you know, cancer therapies. So yeah, it, it seems all a little bit too convenient and kind of chronological to me. So yeah, what, what is a turbo cancer and why is it so bad? So,
0: so turbo cancer is a term that arose about, I'd say maybe a year, year and a half ago. Um, I don't know who gets the credit. Uh, there were a few doctors early on who kind of mentioned the term here and there. Uh, and, and eventually it just caught on because it's, it's the simplest way to explain the behavior of cancers that are arising in people who've had COVID vaccines. And I'm going to focus specifically, I think this is a problem with mRNA vaccines. Um, I've seen, you know, the occasional bizarre cancer in someone who's just had AstraZeneca or J&J, but this, like 99.9% of these bizarre cases are in people who've had either Pfizer or Moderna, which is where, when you start thinking about the potential causes, if SV40 was only discovered in Pfizer, and it's not present in the Moderna vaccines, but Moderna vaccines, I can tell you, are causing turbo cancers, so SV40 may not be an explanation certainly not for all of these, you know, turbo cancers. So turbo cancer describes a very aggressive form of a cancer that arises in someone who's had either Pfizer or Moderna COVID vaccines. These cancers grow very rapidly. Uh, They can, the tumors can grow to very large sizes, although they don't have to, but, but sometimes they grow to very, very large sizes. And, and what's, I, I think, one of the key features of, of, of the turbo cancers is they present late. They present either at stage three or or stage four, usually stage four. And what's, I mean, I think, I think they present in, all, in in people of all ages, but what's shocking is that they present in young people at stage four. And this is where certain types of cancers you just don't expect. You know, I've seen a 19 year old presenting with stage four breast cancer. You never expect that, Right. Uh, or pancreatic cancer or colon cancer or lung cancer it's hitting young people and it's hitting young people in their late teens you know early 20s um a lot of these people uh kids teenagers young adults you know they were forced to take the vaccines either by university mandates uh, or just uh, you know pressure in high schools to play sports for example like i can tell you in canada you you could not play sports if you were 12 years and up, you couldn't play hockey. You couldn't step into a hockey arena unless you had your your vaccine uh, card or you know your vaccine passport. You've had your vaccines, uh, so they forced the vaccines on kids. Uh, they obviously all the universities had vaccine mandates of one one form or another. Even though they've slowly backed off the mandates because there's there's been a lot of university and college kids dropping dead, dying suddenly. Uh, And then when one or two of those happen, then, of course, it gets to the uh, university administrators and they're like, oh, we're going to be legally liable. We better back off the mandates. That happened in Canada. And, And we had a university, Western University in London, Ontario, that mandated booster shots. And they were so proud of it. And they're like, we're the first university in Canada and we're mandating booster shots. And then they had two of their university kids drop dead, die suddenly, age 20 and 21. And then a few days later, they back off and they're like, oh, we consulted our experts. We're not mandating these things anymore. They know. They know that these things are killing their own uh, their own students, right? So you see these, these highly aggressive cancers in these young people, people in their, you know, 20s, 30s, and so on. They grow very rapidly. They present at stage four. And then those young people, usually, you know, previously healthy, they go for treatment and they go on chemo and the chemo doesn't work. Um, or they'll have surgery and the surgeon thinks like he got all the, all the tumor tissue out and then they find out, no, actually it's, it's spread, uh, all over the place. Right. So it it has a very aggressive spread to multiple locations. It goes metastatic very quickly. Uh, It doesn't respond to chemo, doesn't respond to conventional, you know, chemo radiation therapy, or even immunotherapy, which are some of the new generation therapies. It doesn't respond to those either. And so the oncologists then say, well, we've tried everything. Sorry, there's nothing else we can offer you. And you've got maybe a year to live or two years to live. And then they'll die in a month or two. So even the oncologists are completely off in terms of giving the prognosis. And usually oncologists are pretty good at giving prognosis. Like we have a good idea of how a tumor is supposed to behave or how much time you have left because, you know, there's studies that look at hundreds of thousands Of those cancer cases we have graphs we have prognosis graphs we can give you an idea based on you know the type of tumor and when it presented and what stage it presented how many years you might have to live and they're off every time they're completely off uh, the cancers are killing them much more quickly than the oncologists expect so it's a brand i see it as a brand new phenomenon specific to mrna vaccines uh, maybe it's, a, it's the spike protein damaging the immune system, so maybe if the AstraZeneca and the JNJ stayed on the market, we might see more cancers from those vaccines, but because they're off the market, and then people mixed and match vaccines anyways, and now it's very hard to tell, right? Because in Canada, for example, we had a whole bunch of people who took AstraZeneca vaccines, and then they tell them, oh, you want to travel? Well, we don't recognize AstraZeneca, now you have to take two extra Pfizer shots seriously so people were mixing and matching vaccines and they got a couple of AstraZeneca's and then they got some Pfizer's and Moderna and now they get cancer well good luck figuring out which which vaccine gave you the cancer because you've mixed two or three of them right uh, which I think was the, the whole point of, of mixing and matching that, that you could never trace back anything um but it really seems to be a problem with mRNA vaccines uh it's a brand new phenomenon no one knows the exact underlying mechanism I think it'll end up being um, some kind of a very severe immune system damage that destroys the cancer surveillance that your body normally has. Uh, And then the the cancer just it just grows because it has nothing stopping it. It's, It's your immune system is always either killing cancer cells or even if you do develop cancer, your immune system is still dealing with that tumor. But if you don't have that immune protection, then the, then the cancer just grows like wildfire. And these people do extremely poorly. They, they often die, on average, I'd say six to 12 months after diagnosis is when most people with turbo cancer die. It's usually within six to 12 months.
2: Wow, well, I don't know about you, but this episode is making me a little peckish. And you know what sounds good? Some beef liver crisps from our sponsor, Nose the Pale Provisions, who provide 100% grass-fed and finished wild game animal products sourced from America. Their completely microplastic-free products are absolutely delicious and great if you need something in a pinch or just love a good snack. Each product is packed with the most nutrition possible I love their new viral dust bison liver seasoning. And with code Tristan Ten, you'll be saving ten percent on every bit of your order, as well as supporting our show.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying just looking into this from from what I've seen. And I know this is all very grim, but you just think about everything that people have, you know, put into their bodies, right? Like we're talking about multifaceted problems and you know damage going on in our biology. And like you said, if people are mixing and matching they're getting the whole kitchen sink. But I do want to kind of talk about things that people can do because there is things that you can do. And Ryan and I, we interview a lot of health experts. We research a ton on our own and it also draw me to your page as well. Your pinned tweet talks about autophagy through multi-day fasting. And we know as well, the importance of, you know, autophagy cell cleanup, apoptosis, things like that. So is that for you, like the number one recommendation for how people can maybe avoid or greatly reduce the risk of side effects, turbo cancers from getting multiple jabs? Is multi-day fasting, and then maybe anything else that you would uh,
0: recommend? Sure. So you know, I always um, I always recommend a proactive approach because this thing is, I think, the vast majority of people. In the same way that they overestimate the risk of getting infected with COVID-19 and, and being hospitalized and dying, they underestimate the risk from the COVID vaccine. And I and I think I, and I honestly think that you have to treat the vaccine as a poison. Um, and even even being exposed through shedding, some people really struggle uh, with with shedding as well. And and there's reports of people, ha- you know, women having bleeding. Uh, due to shedding, people having blood clots from shedding. Right now, there's even been some suggestion of some people developing cancers because of shedding, because they've been around, they're constantly around vaccinated individuals, uh, that they develop a bizarre cancer. So, now.
1: so is that that's the exposure th- indirectly?
0: I guess that's the indirect exposure, which exactly. is a whole another this is, crazy. This is hole. this is actually what Pfizer confirms in their uh, approval documents. Um, Pfizer actually tells us, yes, our product sheds, except they don't call it shedding. They call it uh, environmental exposure uh, through inhalation or skin, skin contact. And And they say it in their documents. like 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 shedding was seen as this great conspiracy theory by right wing you know lunatics. Like it literally is in Pfizer's own own documents, approval documents. it just they call it differently, right? It, it's uh, exposure. And either through inhalation or or skin contact through bodily fluids, right? Uh, but, but I mean that's a separate topic. And and hopefully the you know if there are cancers happening from that, I'm hoping that that it's a very very rare it's a very rare event because that adds a whole you know layer of problems that that we don't need. <laughs> Frankly, I mean we have big enough problems with the vaccine injury itself, right? But I always say you got to be proactive and treat this as a poison. And and the longer you ignore this poison, the more damage it does in your body, the more likely you are to end up with very serious complications. Because it seems that, and Dr. Peter McCullough talks about this a lot as well, is that we're now seeing long-term effects from these vaccines. People have stopped taking booster shots. I mean, the the uptake of the last booster shot is maybe 10%, roughly 10%, 12%, maybe 15%. You know, it'll probably top out at about 15%. Uh, so 85 to 90% of people are not taking booster shots, but we're seeing, we're still seeing blood clots. Like people are still coming down with pulmonary emboli. They're collapsing and their lungs are full of blood clots. Like, like it's still happening. People are still coming down with myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, heart arrhythmias. Uh, Ryan, you just mentioned, uh, you know, you were mentioning arrhythmias, like arrhythmias are very common. Uh, people having, you know, these, these bizarre, um, heart rhythm problems, right? Um, autoimmune diseases, neurological problems, all kinds of neurological problems. It's still happening. And then of course the cancers. So, and this is in people who haven't taken a booster shot in the last six months. Maybe their last dose was 12 months ago or a year and a half ago. They're still coming down with these problems. So there's a long-term damage that's happening to the vaccinated. So you gotta be proactive. You can't just sit back and wait for that heart attack, right, or wait until you collapse while you're running. Uh, and then find out that you know your lungs are full of blood clots or what have you. So the proactive approach, I always start with the fasting because it's the easiest thing uh, that you can do. Well, maybe not the easiest thing if you're fasting for three days. I've done it. It's doable. It's not the easiest thing, um, but it's certainly something that you can do. Uh, you don't need you need you don't need to have money. You don't need to uh, buy supplements. Anyone can do it, right? And it's the seventy two hour fasting seems to be the sweet spot. You can do a four-day fast or a five-day fast. So the, the benefits of the autophagy, which is the body's process of removing damaged cells, you know, it kicks in and about the second day. You get a sweet spot when you do the three days, the 72 hours of fasting, but you can stretch it out to four days or five days. Uh, and that benefit just kind of keeps increasing uh, the more you do it. But three days is manageable Um, especially for people who might be working, doing other stuff. Um, And autophagy is the process where the body starts cleaning up damaged cells, cells that have been damaged by the spike protein and so on. Uh, It also stimulates production of stem cells. Um, Your body is also eliminating damaged immune cells. And this is something that very few people talk about. Dr. Paul Merrick talks about this, uh, but very few doctors talk about this is that if, if your immune system has been damaged by the vaccines and, and, you know, there's many ways that the vaccines damage the immune system, but you end up with completely dysfunctional T cells, for example, and it's kind of like you, you end up having AIDS. And so you're seeing all these like five, six times vaccinated people posting, oh, I got COVID again. I got COVID again. They keep getting reinfected because their immune system is shot. Well, if you're fasting for 72 hours, your body actually starts to eliminate some of those dysfunctional immune cells as well and then produces stem cells to, to uh, rebuild your immune system. Uh, so there's many benefits to fasting, and I always start with that. Start with the fasting, try it out, uh, and then you know if you feel it's helping you and, and it's, it's giving you a benefit, try doing it maybe a couple of times a month, right? Mm-hmm. Especially someone who's had the vaccines and has had some, some kind of side effects you know, the more times you do it, the more damaged cells you clean out of your system, right? So I, I would start with that uh, fasting, three-day fast. You're not going to get it with a 12-hour fast or a 16-hour fast or intermittent fasting. Like there is some benefit to intermittent fasting, absolutely. There's no question. But if, you, if you're going specifically for autophagy, you're not going to get it. It has to be minimum 36, 48 hours. And then you're, 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 you're bringing it through that 72-hour window. Vitamin D is another one that is basic, it's cheap, and it's a key to the immune system. And it's a key to protection against uh, obviously viral infections, uh, but also protection against some cancers. Uh, The higher your level of vitamin D, the more protection you get against certain types of cancers. So that's another thing that a lot of people can fix. A lot of people are vitamin D deficient, and that's something you can fix uh, quite easily. Uh, you can get your levels tested, see where you're at, and then they take supplements, you know, uh, uh, vitamin D3 with uh, K2 um, and get those levels up. Then, um, you know, then the issue is obviously the spike protein. Uh, the spike protein is problematic and, and this, it starts to get a little bit of controversial because now there's people saying, well, you know, you can't detox from the spike protein and it's nonsense and so on. But, when you look at testimonials people who have taken supplements that either break down the spike protein or block the spike protein they've had improvement in their symptoms it's just different things work for different people so i don't like to say well here's a spike detox protocol and this is what you take and this works for everybody because it doesn't right now dr McC- dr peter mccullough has got a spike detox protocol he uses the natokinase which is uh, derived from you know soy, fermented soybeans breaks down the spike protein. He also uses bromelain, which is derived an enzyme derived from pineapple, and he uses curcumin, which blocks the spike protein from doing damage. So he's got a protocol that can work for a lot of people. It's not going to work for everybody though, um, but he's got a protocol that uh, seems to work for some people, right? It, it seems to be you need to take a combination of things, and you you need to do trial and error. Right, So you've got the enzymes that break down the spike protein, the natokinase, the bromelain. There's seropeptase and lumbrokinase, which people have tried as well with some success. Then you've got the things that block the spike protein, and that's the ivermectin. So a lot of people have success with ivermectin. Um, things like quercetin, uh, black seed, or nigella sativa is the uh, another name for it. Dandelion root, uh, artemisia, annua. Um, NAC N-acetylcysteine. It's also a powerful antioxidant that some people take, you know, vitamin C is another antioxidant that sort of cleans up some of the spike damage. Um, So people just have to play around with these things and try different things and see what works for them. Right. Now, when, when it comes to, uh, sorry, anyway, were you going to ask a question?
1: Uh, Yeah. I was just going to say to me, it's, it's definitely, you know, I think it's a good thing that there are things that people can do and, to me, we talk a lot about like foundational principles on this show. So you mentioned vitamin D, like, yes, yeah, supplements could potentially work, especially if you're in a severe health issue, but like you can go outside too and get yeah, real of vitamin D and can get many different forms of vitamin D that's actually sulfated. And then, the autophagy piece as well. I think, you know, something that people are just so disconnected from their sleep every night. And we know that sleep is like a very restorative process, melatonin and yeah. um, kind of that regulates autophagy and apoptosis at the mitochondrial level. And that's something we've dug into. And I think really the the problem I has it, have is there's so many people that any, they could be 25, they could be 20, they could be 30. And then they get hit with, you know, the jab, but their foundational lifestyle was so poor. This was just what really, really put them over the edge. I mean, obviously it's, it's terrible and it's causing all these issues, but I think to just give like a light of hope for people, like if you address your health at the foundational level, you have like a very strong chance of being able to deal with whatever, you know, you got, you did to your body. I mean, the body's ability to innately heal. And that's what you're saying. It's like, yeah, X supplement could help for some person and X could help for Y, but really like our body can heal itself if we, if we give it the chance. And that's why I love the multi-day fast. And there's actually a bunch of papers talking about like mitochondrial dysfunction and myocarditis and the spike proteins that I've read about. And I know that's like a hub for immune system signaling. So that that's just what we love to preach is kind of if if you address health at a foundational level like you got a really great chance and you know we have this great ability to heal if you just tap into it.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right and 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 yeah, I mean that that's 100% correct. Um and I should have actually said, you know, diet maybe even at the outset. I mean, a diet is big as well and Especially, you know, when you're looking at, well, risks of cancer, uh, eliminating sugar out of your diet and elim- eliminating, you know, seed oils, uh, you know, I think the closer you can get to a ketogenic diet, probably the better. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know that much about like a carnivore, like a pure carnivore diet and things like that. You know, I'm not as well versed in, in, in those kinds of things. But I know that trying to, you know, if, if you can eliminate a lot of the the toxic elements of the diet as much as you can uh you you're you're putting all the odds in your favor if you're doing these things um you know like you said sunshine diet uh melatonin is another one that um i think is really good it helps the immune system it actually stimulates uh production of of t of cytotoxic t cells as well uh it also i think resets your your natural rhythms or at least tries to reset your sort of natural rhythms um And it has some protective effect um, against cancer as well. Uh, Some people are using melatonin in high doses actually to to treat cancer uh, as well. So so there's that component to it too. Um, All of these things, you know, you're putting all these things um, in in your favor. Uh, Now, exercise, I would say, is also important. However, the problem with exercise where someone who's been vaccinated is the issue of the heart. Right, if your if your heart's been damaged or if your heart's been hit, and you you go and you start doing intense uh, intense exercise, you're running the risk of uh, potentially a, a cardiac arrhythmia or, or 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 even a cardiac arrest. Right, and and so uh, that is a complicated piece where I actually would would say be careful with exercise. Um, if you can, maybe have some kind of a cardiac workup done. Just to see that there isn't anything obvious. Uh, you know, maybe some obvious scarring or 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 what have you. Um, but people, people who are getting hit, especially with these uh died suddenly, with this died suddenly phenomenon. It's people who are athletic, and it's not necessarily athletes. I mean, we know about we know the issue about the athletes collapsing, right? But it's 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 people, you know, teachers, engineers, what have you, who like to run marathons who like to do triathlons who you know they do personal their personal trainers on the side like people who are athletic um they're getting hit very hard uh with cardiac issues uh they're dying in their sleep or they're collapsing when when they're doing some high intensity exercise and I've done you know I've done a lot of review of of sudden deaths uh in 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 men of men and women Uh, you know, in their 20s and 30s, even 40s as well. Um, And it really seems to be running is extremely dangerous. Uh, Running soccer, for whatever reason, soccer seems to be by far the most dangerous activity you can do if you've been vaccinated. And of course, you know, the triathlons and so on. And and where they're also getting hit is when they're doing some kind of training. So when, when you join the police, for example, and you're doing some kind of police training or you're doing military training, or you doing drills as a firefighter uh they're dying after these uh after these exercises. So that is one dangerous element where I would say you know exercise usually you know fantastic obviously you want to do a lot of exercise but if you've been vaccinated there's a dangerous element there with the, with the heart that you have to be cautious about.
2: Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. That's something that I've thought about. I mean, I've had I've had like a, actually I've had like a family member to like have blood clotting issues or like one of them actually did have a stroke, uh, recently. Um, and so it's like a huge concern. That's where like having the other elements I think is super important. Like even simple things like adding a red light device to your routine and just like giving some mitochondrial stimulation with, with that is great. Or just like getting out if you can and just kind of like letting the body do its thing. That's where I think autophagy comes in really handy for like those people. Cause they can do that without needing to really exert effort. You know what I mean? It's just mentally difficult, especially in the beginning. But I, I think you get sick enough, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you really, you can do amazing things. And I've seen very profound changes in people over the years of just like, just meeting new people and talking to people like Tristan and stuff like that. So kind of interesting. You got, obviously, this message is, you know, a little more well accepted now. But, you know, in the in the interim, it was not exactly hot uh in in mainstream and you actually got banned uh on on twitter for for a hot minute there how has been like spreading the message and with issues of free speech around this i think about canada specifically but even here in the u.s like it's clear that it's happening how has been getting the message out there how's it evolved and and how do you continue to push that forward how's it going
0: well, 2023 has been, uh, for me, it's been a transformative year because I was banned off social media uh, for almost all of 2022. Um, I got banned in March of 2022 for raising concerns about vaccinating kids 5 to 11 years old. I mean, to me, you know, vaccinating kids was crossing the line. And But I saw there was no pushback uh, for vaccinating kids 12 to 18. And that kind of shocked me. But I thought, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, the parents are not standing up and they're just kind of letting their kids uh, get vaccinated, 12 to 18 years old. Uh, but then they came after kids 5 to 11 years old. And I thought, well, maybe that'll be the line in the sand. And so I was speaking out about that. And and But the funny thing is, is that they killed a whole bunch of accounts th- at the time that were raising concerns about vaccinating kids 5 to 11. They really wanted that group vaccinated. Uh, that was very aggressively pushed. And so I lost my account there, and I obviously I couldn't go on pretty much any other platform, uh, you know, forget Facebook or YouTube or or any of these uh, places, right? So uh, even Instagram, I've been threatened repeatedly on Instagram to the point where I literally just post photos of someone who's died suddenly and zero commentary because, you know, I don't want to lose my Instagram account either. But um, the censorship was crazy in 2022, just absolutely insane, completely out of control i was on getter and of course then you know i had like a five thousand followers and and that was it and and some people were actually taking my posts from getter trying to post them on twitter and sometimes they'd go viral and sometimes they'd get banned right so it was it was a big risk but the the censorship was was insane and that all changed with elon musk um, I also discovered Substack, which was actually there's no censorship on Substack either. So I discovered that early this year in February. I got my Twitter account back in February of this year as well. So I've had to rebuild my social media presence from scratch, um, but it's 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 been incredible because um, you know I've got about 200,000 followers right now between the various platforms, which for a Canadian doctor is is pretty good. Uh, we don't have the same kind of you know audience uh in canada as as let's say you do in the united states so you've got you know dr peter mccullough dr dr malone robert malone they've got about a million followers and they've been on rogan they've been on joe rogan joe rogan of course has massive exposure um, they, they've been on tucker carlson tucker carlson now is a superstar right he's got I, I think the biggest audience probably of anybody on on social media so huge changes in 2023 on social media there's still the censorship on all the other, other platforms so I've been told by LinkedIn that if I post anything about vaccines again, they'll delete delete me permanently, and I'll never have an account on LinkedIn again, for example. I've been threatened three times on Instagram. Uh, I've never even tried to post on Facebook on YouTube, and anybody else who does is always uh, gets a 30 day ban or or gets suspended outright. So the censorship actually is still there. We kind of forget like like those of us who who are now mainly on on um, Twitter, and Substack, we kind of forget that the other platforms are like fully fascist, like complete, you know, like no freedom of speech at all. Uh, and, and, and those are big platforms. And, and like, for example, on Instagram, people are speaking in code. I don't know, I don't know, if, I mean, if you guys are aware of this, but, but like there, there's a big group, like uh, I think it's Jab Injuries Australia, and they speak in code. Because you're not allowed to say vaccine, you're not, you know, you have to say that, you know, you've had uh, a P for Pfizer, uh, and then, you know, it's usually a a sign with a zipper, you know, across your your mouth, Uh, like like you have to speak in code, otherwise you'll get banned on these platforms. So censorship is still a huge issue uh, in the vast majority of social media platforms. Uh, Twitter or X has really changed that, that paradigm uh and i think it's it's allowed the mainstreaming of a lot of these issues that would otherwise be considered completely fringe russian disinformation propaganda like like the dna contamination for example issue right now you've got the florida surgeon general talking about the dna contamination of the vaccines and saying hey what's going on with this dna contamination i need pfizer and and moderna to explain themselves You know, and he he'll say it on on X or on Twitter, and you know, he can say it openly because he's not gonna lose his his account, right? Uh so it has like like X or Twitter for all its flaws and and you know it's not perfect, it's not a perfect platform. I think it has completely changed um the the issue of free speech and the censorship that we're seeing on all the other platforms. So I think it's it's been a huge benefit. Um and like I said, you know, for someone like me, now we get viciously attacked. I mean, I get death threats. Uh forget about, you know, trying to practice medicine. I mean, we've been stripped of our licenses, you know, we're unemployable in in some ways. Uh I mean that there's there like that is as bad as it's ever been in terms of the medical authorities going after doctors in Canada, even in the United States. You see, they're arresting doctors in Germany um, for speaking out about the vaccine issues. You know, they're still going after doctors all over the world. But we do have a platform where we can speak out. And uh, and like I said, our audience, my audience is growing every single day. Uh, same with obviously, you know, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Pierre Corey, Dr. Robert Malone, you know, all of us who are speaking out because people want to know, people want to have an alternative opinion. And people don't have to trust me, don't have, they don't have to trust anything I say, right? I'm, I'm not, I don't have an agenda, I don't have, uh, you know, there's no conspiracy here. I'm giving my observations as a physician, I'm giving my, my assessment as a physician, and then people can go and, you know, they can verify things on their own, uh, go to other sources and so on, but at least I have a platform to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, I think it's incredible, um, you know, what Elon has done with Twitter. Uh, that's where I focus most of my energy and definitely like this podcast for sure. would probably only post there, you know, definitely not on YouTube. And it's, uh, it's incredible, right? Because the truth will resonate, but it has to have a medium to be able to get to the public, to society too. And if all those mediums are fully captured, the truth won't be able to escape, right? So it only takes one channel. And, you know, Elon's realized that there's, you know, it's very attracting, attractive to people to be able to consider these other perspectives that, you know, we have been lied to, we have been deceived and punked, and there's major consequences to this. So we really appreciate all that you've been doing and, you know, the likes of you and just a handful of others. As you mentioned, there's not a ton out there who have been willing to put their reputation completely on the line to get canceled and then to still keep fighting to let that truth actually resonate through and help educate people that this is really serious and that, you know, lives are being lost because of the decisions made and the censorship that has been kind of thrust upon us. So Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Mackus, for coming on and sharing. This has been like so great and insightful. I've been wanting to have a conversation like this for for a while now. Where can people find you specifically on on Twitter X and then on your Substack to support your work? Because as you just heard, this is kind of, you know, the best way you can support Dr. Mackus for all of his very important work that he has put out there for, for helping people.
0: Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, people can find me on Twitter. Um, it's at macsmd, and I'm right now. You know, I I put out daily articles on my Substack. That's macsmd.substack.com. And you know, I right now I'm focusing on just alerting people to the the types of vaccine injuries that people are suffering, and and what do those people look like? You know, I mean, I mean, we we see people collapsing around us and dying suddenly on a daily basis. I report a lot of sudden deaths, a lot of unusual deaths that, you know, don't have a good explanation. And it's happening all around. And, you know, people will attack me on my articles. And and I I get community notes, Facebook, uh, sorry, uh, Twitter community notes on almost all of my articles uh, because they're trying to suppress, they're trying to say, this is not happening. This, you know, vaccine, you know, the mRNA vaccines can't cause cancer and, and all this stuff. Um, and they're really trying to suppress uh, the information from getting out. But the best they can do is to write a bogus community note that when you look at those, their sources, it's either some fake website that a doctor created that's sponsored by Big Pharma. I'm serious. Like like it's when you actually look at the sources or it's like a source like CDC, right? The CDC that's been telling us for three years that the vaccines are safe and effective when we know they are they aren't right right so so i mean there's still attempts to suppress the information but but you know i'm i'm very active on twitter at macsmd i'm very active on substack uh, macsmd.substack.com and i also post uh diet sunlies on instagram wmacsmd people can find me on instagram there if they prefer that medium Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be as active as I can be and just get as much information out there. One thing I wanted to mention was that, um, you know, people will say that I'm making all of this up or that I'm just making this up because, uh, I don't know, I want to push an agenda or make money or what have you. And the thing is, is that, you know, whenever I post a phenomenon that I see happening around me, if I was making things up, you don't last on, on social media with, with you know, with international attention, you know, if you're just making stuff up, you're not gonna last very long, right? And and people will let you know. And it, it's the way people are letting right now does, for example, the CDC director know that, hey, listen, these vaccines are not working. Stop pushing this garbage, stop pushing it on children, stop pushing it on pregnant women. Like people will let you know, you know, and, and, uh, and it's just, instead what happens is I will put information out there and people will say, yes, this happened to my dad, my mom, my, my cousin, my, like, they will start telling about their stories. And I think that's another big piece of this is that it, it's happening to people. It's happening to thousands of people. Uh, they're posting their stories on Twitter, on X, uh, and letting us know what happened to them. And it's like, are we all lying? Right? Are we all, is, is, is it just thousands of people from around the world are making this up? We're not, Right. So, um, anyways, thank you very much for, for having me on and, um, yeah, just, just real quick. You know,
1: I, yeah. Thanks. I wanted to just really quick cause that is so important and it was kind of my like, you know, sniff test was like for COVID. Like I didn't know anybody who died of COVID like at all. So I was like, Hmm, it must not be that bad. But then the vaccine injuries like there's, yeah, so many, And maybe the last just quick thing here is what's really undeniable is the excess mortality data. Right. And I've seen you post about that. It's like what, 30 to 50% in, in some areas. So is that to you like the best way to tell people that this is a real problem because, you know, this data is kind of undebatable?
0: Well, so that's a fascinating phenomenon in that, um, the people who are still defending the vaccine you they kind of fall into two camps and either they're denying the excess mortality and they're saying there is no excess mortality and it's all just uh you know statistical games um or they they acknowledge the excess mortality and they say well it's anything but the vaccine so it's long covid it's 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 climate change it's it's what have you right and and so you know they kind of fall into these two camps but what's interesting is and what i put out recently for example was data from straight from the canadian government this is like statistics canada straight from the canadian government like they're they're like this is you can go to like this is the government website this is what they're reporting and they're reporting almost 50,000 excess deaths in 2022 now 50,000 excess deaths for canada uh, compared to United States that's the equivalent of the US government coming out and saying there's 420,000 excess deaths last year in the United States like that is a big number and they have no explanation for it they say well some of it might have been covid some of it is unexplained causes what have you but that aside there are literally 50,000 excess deaths of Canadians that happened last year like and and governments are confirming excess mortality they just don't have an explanation for it, or a good explanation for it. So it is happening, and and I think it, it's it's uh, I think it confirms that there's a serious problem that's going on. And when you break it down by when you stratify it by age, you see it's young people who are dying. This is what Ed Doubt, for example, uh, focuses his research on, and I love I, I love his research when he looks at U.S. insurance uh, data, disabilities, and deaths. He's like something is killing young people there's a there's an excess mortality of 40 or 50 percent in young working age people what's killing young working age people i mean we should all want to know right but a lot of the people who are defending the vaccine they don't even want to look at that they don't even want to they don't even want to find out what else it could be other than the vaccine right and but it it's there and so i think I think as time goes by, and especially into 2024, we're only a few days away from 2024, I think there's just gonna be more and more information coming out. I think it's gonna be undeniable that there's huge excess mortality um, in all the highly COVID vaccinated countries. I think we're gonna see more problems come out with the vaccines. You can even see it in in the uh, share price of Pfizer and Moderna. The shares are crashing, no one knows why. But it's obviously the market is pricing something in behind the scenes as well. I think, I think we're going to see maybe not the entire, I'm, I'm hoping the entire house of cards is going to collapse in 2024 in terms of these mRNA vaccines. I'm hoping this whole thing is going to collapse next year. Uh, if not, I think uh, it'll collapse to a large degree. So I think more information will keep coming out.
1: Uh, yeah, I hope so too. I mean, and that's ever more the reason for folks to take control of their health, you know, opt out of this system. Like don't be reliant. Don't have yourself in a position where you can get back into a corner, like start thinking about these things now, even if you kind of got stuck in the first round, you know, things might, they're going to happen again and you can just be better prepared now. So thanks so much, Dr. Mackis. It's been a pleasure and yeah, we'll definitely stay in touch and let you know when we get this out there. Thank you very much. All righty. We'll see you next time. All right. We just had an epic chat with Dr. Mackis on COVID vaccines, everything. And we're just going to spend maybe 10, 15 minutes here to quickly debrief. Cause this is a pretty heavy topic and an important one, but I'm just going to start out Ryan. I think everything he shared, it's like, you know, it's really scary especially cause I have a lot of loved ones and friends and family that got like Pfizer and Moderna, but I definitely learned a ton. And you know, it's almost showing how important it is to take control of your health. Like right now it's more important than ever before in human history to just be on top of your shit in regards to health.
2: hundred percent. I mean, we've said it on that podcast multiple times, but even over the last three years, just do, minus the vaccination thing or not, just from the situation of COVID, I think the ideas around creating like systemic health and the idea of like decentralization and not being reliant on medical system is pretty much on everyone's minds. Like even... I, I I reference like people that I'm close to that aren't necessarily into some of the modalities that we talk about on the show. Even they are beginning to think, man, like maybe I need to get some Bitcoin. Like maybe the maybe the fiat currency is going to crash and stuff like that. And people are they're expanding what their horizon has been in the past. And I think that is valuable. And actually, if anything, I think this discussion was almost. Um, There was a lot of negative uh, vibe, but it was a positive informational boost because I think what it gives is just an awareness. And that's all at the end of the day, like you need, like I can't make decisions for anyone listening, but they can make decisions based on what they've heard. And they shouldn't, they should have taken away that like, there's actually a lot you can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much, and we didn't even really get into that, but it's kind of like everything that we talk about on the yeah. show. And, I, and that's why I kind of dove into the mitochondrial function. And that's the papers I've read on the spike proteins, but then just talking about immune system functioning in general. And you see, it makes sense, right? Like the heart, the heart's the most mitochondrial rich tissue, the most energy demanding tissue pretty much. Uh, obviously, the brain as well is going to be heavily impacted there. And that's why you're seeing these, you know, heart attacks and extreme inflammation of the myocardium the myocarditis. And to me, it's like, you really need to make this a priority, right? And, and the things he mentioned as well, you know, obviously a little bit supplement heavy, but you know, he probably hasn't gone down the circadian biology rabbit yeah. holes, even though he mentioned that. But you know, getting outside, getting that full spectrum sunlight, the vitamin D. Obviously it's winter time right now, so you can do, you know, embracing seasonality. And I've kind of just done research on how, like, you know, embracing winter and you're getting higher melatonin levels. So that sleep is so important um, to restore cellular function, clean up all the damage. And, you know, even if you got jabbed two years ago, but your health hasn't been like, you know, top tier, you know, start taking a priority first approach in terms of doing the right things so you can heal. Like our body, our bodies are so resilient, but we just yeah. have all this other junk in the way and we don't live that connected lifestyle. So I really think, I mean, I'm. this has motivated me. I've been overdue for kind of like a three to four day fast, but I'm going to try and convince everybody in my family to do one as well, because it's so easy. I mean, it's not mentally easy, but it's so easy. Like it literally costs $0. It'll save you money for three days. It won't be the most enjoyable thing, but it's so worth it. And if you, if you can do a three-day fast, maybe twice in the next three months, you could really be making a difference in terms of potential negative health outcomes from getting multiple jabs, I think. And then coupling that with, you know, regular sunlight, uh, prioritizing sleep, I mean, I, I don't think it's a problem then. Like, if you ask my honest opinion, I think some people overhype the vaccine injuries. Yeah. But it's only in the the context. Like, it's only in the context of dysfunctional
2: health overall. Yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of like one overarching point that I think you actually made in the podcast was about, and, and it was a thought that I had had and a reason I think you can't look at the distribution of the vaccine evenly amongst people. Because if you look at, I mean, yes, it was sort of came out that like, yes, it's causing damage for everybody, but the extent is different. Because clearly I didn't get sinus tachycardia, but my girl, well, I actually didn't get the vaccine, but my point is, my, the, but my girlfriend but if you got,
1: did, I think you would have a better, a far better outcome. Yeah, less likelihood. But,
2: but and, and that's the thing is like, it goes back to how were you living before you got it? Like everyone, that's the problem with mainstream. Even I, I call it mainstream functional medicine is that everyone looks at what's the boogeyman when really the boogeyman was probably just the last domino. It wasn't just the mold. It wasn't just the vaccine. It wasn't just the X, Y, Z, because all these other things weren't happening that probably led to making that even worse. Now are they important? Yeah. But that's why I think it's not just about like doing the vaccine injury protocol or whatever you want to call it. It's about kind of taking into account all the other things. And I want people to realize too, once you get over the hump, It's never about being the person you were before, because the person you were before got you fucked. You don't want to be that person ever again. So it's about making these things sort of second nature. I actually wanted to ask you, though, because we did talk about three-day fasting. We didn't really talk about how you go about three-day fasting. So I was going to say, if you were going to go into a three-day fast, how do you approach that, prepare for it, and how do you go through it without wanting to kill yourself? (laughs) <laughs> For some Yeah.
1: People. Well, first, what you said is extremely important, right? Like you can heal in the same environment that you got sick in. And we've talked about that at length. We talk about, you know, that doesn't mean you need to move. Um, but it need you need to change things. You need to be deliberate about health. You have to be deliberate about health, especially if you got multiple vaccinations or quote unquote drug therapies as they really should be called. And it's really important as well to just be honest with yourself. And, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do, but in terms of the fasting component, yeah. Um, well right now I'm like hyper ketogenic, um, being in winter metabolism. So I think that's you know, a good way to go about it. I think a lot of people can struggle burning fat for fuel in general because they eat way too many carbs. They're in constant mm-hmm. summer metabolism. So <clears throat> since it's wintertime in the Northern Hemisphere, I'd almost recommend you do like a ketogenic diet anyway. Maybe you don't want to completely cut carbs, but maybe tapering carbs for a good bit leading up to a fast is a good idea, I think, and maybe kind of like slowly easing into it. And then, yeah, um, you know, it's a water fast. So you want to make sure that you're drinking high quality water during the fast, to be honest, if it's very intimidating for you to do a 72 hour fast, do a 36 hour first. And then, you know, a few weeks later do a 72 hour fast. I mean, I, I, I used to do 24 to 36 hour fast, like pretty regularly. And then I made the jump last year to doing a couple 72 hour plus 80 hour fast. And just having that experience was really helpful, but really the most important thing to be honest, when you fast is yeah, you get high quality water in that's mineralized and it's more so breaking the fast is, is important. Right. So you oh, don't, yeah. you know, on hour 72, you don't want to just like, eat. don't eat, uh, don't t- eat
2: three ribeyes. Like one of my clients that doesn't, that yeah. doesn't help.
1: Like but- don't eat a bunch of food to break your fast because your digestion will be absolutely terrible. And yeah, that will be causing a lot of, uh, kind of disruption to to your your stomach and your bowels so when you do break your fast i highly recommend breaking it with bone broth or some like warm uh calorie filled liquid um whatever is of your choosing and then really have like a small meal maybe just like a small piece of protein like just a piece of meat uh a couple hundred grams uh an hour or so after that and then maybe a couple hours after that you have like a proper meal. Um, it's kind of up to you. Um, but that's what I have found have been to have been really helpful. And, um, yeah, I think building up is uh, always something that can make it easier, but at the end of the day, uh, you're not going to die. You might get rushes of anxiety and kind of your body freaking out during the 72 hours. You're not going to die. If you're properly mineralized, it can be really helpful. So drinking high quality water, as mentioned, and then trying to just, you know, do light movement, you know, don't exercise intensely. This is not the goal. Just go for light walks outside and kind of just, uh, yeah, maybe spend more time doing some breath work or meditation, if that's helpful for you. But yeah, I don't know, Ryan, if you've had any other helpful tips while fasting for longer. No, I
2: mean, it was good. I think it is important. Like when, even for like the 24 hour first one, like once you get fat adapted, 24 hours is nothing. Sometimes I've accidentally almost got 24 without even planning on it. It's really, once you start creeping in on 36 that you kind of get like thinking about it a little bit, but the more fat adapted you are, 72 isn't the worst thing in the world. I've had friends go up to like seven days and they say they were good up until like the fifth day almost um, when they started feeling it. And so it's really just like recognize your situation, I think is the biggest thing, like recognize where you're at. Don't look at Tristan and be like, okay, I can just do this, but I'm I'm eating like 50 bananas a day. And like, you're not like, you gotta know where you're at, ease into it. You'll find that I think, if you're in a decent state of metabolic health already, even if you're not quote ketogenic right now, you can get fat adapted pretty quick. I've had a 67 year old client like get into ketosis in like a couple weeks, weeks, um, which was pretty crazy. So, but just like, you know, ease into it. And then like, yeah, I think the biggest thing isn't necessarily the fast itself, because if you're drinking mineralized water, you're kind of taking it easy. You kind of can get through it, but it's how you break it that will kind of determine your, your remembrance of the fasting and make you not want to do it again. So yeah, ease out of it. Definitely. Like for me, uh, when I did my first 72 hour, which was like probably a year ago, I just did bone broth almost the whole first day after, which I don't know if that's entirely necessary, but like, that's I want to be really slow because yeah. I've had people tell me some horror stories of like, <laughs> yeah, I just slammed like I had one person tell me they literally ate three ribeyes after. And I was like, that's like, no, <laughs> don't do that.
1: Yeah, so if you're trying to, you know, improve your health drastically in 2024, worried about maybe some of the issues with getting jabbed, start with the fast, and then really focus on mitochondrial function. So addressing the circadian biology, so you have that autophagy, apoptosis signaling from melatonin, which is anti-cancer, going on a low deuterium diet. We've talked about deuterium with Laszlo Boros. This has been proven to shrink tumor size and be helpful in cancer mitigation and prevention. And that is basically a low-carb, high-fat diet, especially in wintertime, this makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, avoiding other mitochondrial toxins, such as EMFs, glyphosate, we talked about plastics as well. You had a great podcast on plastic. So really just addressing the toxins in your environment, getting connected to source, the earth, the sun, and living kind of in that more natural, naturally ancestrally consistent lifestyle. You're going to be fine. And not only are you going to be fine, you'll be thriving, uh, especially in comparison to, to everyone around you. So I think it's the perfect recipe. Like Anthony Smith says from EMF safe, you know, it's what it's not always what broke the camel's back. It's kind of that base load weight that is really if you pull off the biggest weights, your your health will improve and then you can be way more resilient um, in terms of the the toxins or that, yeah, really big short-term toxin in the form of a jab. But <clears throat> it's the perfect recipe for me to have all these side effects and injuries and deaths because we have such a sick society. We have such a mitochondrial dysfunctional society in general. I mean, chronic disease before COVID is through the roof. And now we just add on this really, you know, hefty dose of a short term toxin, it's for sure going to push a lot of people over the edge. And that's what's happening. So it's unsurprising. But there are definitely solutions that are simple, that may be somewhat challenging for you to implement in a modern lifestyle. But they are pretty simple to gain back your health, gain back your vitality and not live in fear, which is most important, I think. I agree. Fantastic. Well, Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hopefully we can get more of these uh, folks that are researching this area like Ed Dowd and maybe Mm. even Peter McCullough, Robert Malone on the show in the future. Uh, Let us know what you think about this episode in the comments. Shoot us an email at uh, decentralizedradio at gmail.com and we will definitely incorporate any feedback and guest recommendations going forward. So thanks so much for, for tuning in to this episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time.